From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. The physical toll of COVID-19 is, of course, unprecedented. But the psychological impact of the pandemic is quickly becoming a public health crisis in its own right. In fact, a recent report estimated that as many as 75,000 more Americans will die from deaths of despair due to the effects of COVID-19. And we'll talk a little bit more about what exactly that means. But even as the need for behavioral health becomes more urgent, the barriers to providing comprehensive behavioral health services still exist. To unpack what providers need to do to support their employees and their community, I brought my colleague, Claire Worth. Hey, Claire. Hey, Ray. How are you? I am doing well. Where are you dialing into the podcast from? From my apartment in Logan Circle in the district. Well, so happy to have you here on Radio Advisory. I want to ask you a question before we really dive in to what this all means. And that's just take a moment and define for us what it is that we mean when we talk about behavioral health. Behavioral health is a pretty broad term. It actually means everything that's related to your psychological well-being and ability to function in everyday life. I'd say in my conversations with folks, we often use the terms mental health and behavioral health interchangeably. And that's for good reason, but behavioral health is simply an umbrella term. It's a bit broader and encompasses both mental health as well as substance use disorders. You've actually been studying behavioral health at advisory board for quite some time. So I want you to take a moment and take me back to the state of behavioral health prior to the pandemic. What did it actually look like in healthcare? Even before COVID-19, behavioral health needs have been on the rise for a long time. In fact, the U.S. has reported that those deaths of despair that you mentioned before, those related to suicide, alcohol, and drugs, have been at the highest rates since the CDC started collecting that data 20 years ago. Hmm. And then on top of that, there's about a quarter of adults and a quarter of children who live with anxiety disorders. All of that means that there's a lot of demand for behavioral health services, right? There's a lot of need just in the American population. But tell me about the state of treatment for those behavioral health needs. Put simply, less than half of people who have a surfaced behavioral health need receive any treatment for it, despite that it's been on the rise for decades. Hmm. But I'd say it's not evenly distributed. It's important to know, especially the conversation we're having today around health equity, that there are behavioral health disparities too. People of color are less likely to be identified for having a behavioral health condition, and they're also less likely to receive treatment compared to white people. And you use that term, identified for having a behavioral health need, right? We talk about some of the numbers and some of the statistics about the demand being so high, but I'm guessing it doesn't quite scratch the surface at just how much need and demand is actually out there. Mm -hmm. There is a ton of need. 
Um, and there are a lot of barriers to addressing that need. There aren't enough behavioral health professionals. The typical front doors that we think of to treatment, usually primary care or the emergency department, they are not universally screening for these behavioral health needs. And then when they do surface that need, they're oftentimes not staffed with adequate on-site expertise, and they don't coordinate all that well with community organizations that are addressing their psychosocial needs. And then beyond that, there are reimbursement issues. There's a lot of out-of-pocket costs. And I'm guessing that even when those services are available, patients are often still reluctant to use them. Mm -hmm. When we look at surveys, patients often point to high costs, stigma, whether that be that they don't think that treatment is going to help or they think that they can handle it themselves. And then also more logistical reasons around not having enough time or knowing where to go. And of course, like most things we're grappling with in the healthcare industry, this is all coming to a head in this moment as we're facing a pandemic. And Claire, I'm guessing that the psychological toll of living through a pandemic, plus just the loneliness that comes with the fact that you and I are on week 10, 12, something like that of, of social distancing, I'm guessing that that all hasn't actually helped the behavioral health trends in the industry. Yes, exactly. And Ray, you just mentioned a handful of the factors that we're seeing here impacting our collective psyche, but there's also grief and fear and anxiety. People aren't able to mourn the loss of their loved ones. More people are experiencing intimate partner violence. And those who are managing an addiction could more easily relapse without those regular in-person meetings or access to rehab. Ultimately, we're looking at about 80% of Americans reporting moderate to high levels of distress from COVID-19. That's a really scary number. To think about the fact that 80% of Americans will have moderate or high distress because of COVID is not good, given the fact that you just outlined for us the barriers to receiving treatment prior to the pandemic were pretty significant. So tell me about how most healthcare systems have or perhaps don't have the resources to meet this new demand. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And it's important to recognize that this isn't going to go away when COVID-19 does. Let's say we all magically have access to a COVID-19 vaccine. There is still going to be a long-lasting mental health toll that is compounded by the resulting economic downturn that we're all experiencing. And so this is going to create a lasting need for behavioral health services. Healthcare leaders and executives have to prepare right now for an enormous amount of behavioral health demand. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how can leaders actually try to meet this need when things like reimbursement is low and staffing shortages are often out of their control? Yeah, the good news here is that leaders' first priority is actually something that is within their control, and that's focusing on your home team, your existing clinicians. One study that came out earlier this year looked at the healthcare workers in China who were on the front lines of treating COVID-19 patients, and about half of those clinicians reported symptoms of depression. And there are also frontline clinicians who aren't facing exactly those stressors, but they have different ones. They are facing job insecurity, pay cuts, on top of the general distress that people like you and me are facing too. We talked a little bit about how to support your clinicians during Nurses Week earlier this year, but I'm curious to hear from you, what can leaders do to support their clinicians, their nurses, their doctors, especially because those are people who 
you and I know, aren't always so good at prioritizing their own health. (laughs) Yeah, that is a great point. In many ways, COVID-19 is just magnifying the challenges that we were having here. Depression and suicide disproportionately affect physicians, and we know physicians and nurses are oftentimes reluctant to seek care. And that's not just because of stigma reasons. It's also because they're afraid to lose their license. Hmm. That one is surprising to me. Why would somebody be afraid of losing their license? In a lot of states, when physicians and nurses are reporting for their licenses, they also get a very direct question about whether they've received behavioral health treatment. And there have been cases of people who have not received their licensure because of their response to that question. So there's some barriers to just even nurses, physicians seeking care, whether they're real or perceived. How do we actually solve for that? Deciding how to support means you first need to look at the available resources that you have. So this can be social workers, chaplains, first responders who are trained in psychological first aid, palliative care specialists, hospice workers who are trained in behavioral health support, as well as thinking about students and faculty members who are affiliated with psychology or social work graduate programs. And I think that's important because when we think about providing behavioral health services, at least my brain goes to a very, very specific set of people. It's your psychiatrist, your psychologist. But you just named a an army of people who can perhaps be deployed to meet the behavioral health needs. And we've only started talking about your own clinicians. I'm curious, can you share an example of an organization who's, who's maybe done this well? I can share a few because a lot of organizations have already done this. Mount Sinai in New York got a head start. So they leverage a range of staff members from psychiatrists to social workers from their Department of Psychiatry. Meridian Health in New Jersey, they created a 24-7 confidential line for their employees. And then we have folks like Penn Medicine who've created new digital tools for their employees too. And I'm certain that we have a lot more detail about those case studies and other ways to support behavioral health in the home team. And perhaps we can link to resources like that in the show notes. Yes, definitely. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Hi, I'm Chris with the radio advisory team. On behalf of everyone at advisory board, thank you for everything you're doing to battle COVID-19. We want to help you celebrate the bright spots. Perhaps you've been amazed at how your teams, your peers, or your leaders are supporting you. Or perhaps a patient's words reminded you of why you do what you do. What bright spots are you seeing? We want to hear from you. Share your story at advisory.com slash thank you and view our message of thanks. What about serving the needs beyond your home team. So serving the needs of the community who, as we described, have a lot of new and and existing behavioral health needs. If existing clinicians who are on the front lines of care are your first priority, the second group who you want to focus on is those with pre-existing behavioral health conditions. I really like that you use the term prioritization Because just like what leaders have done with everything else related to COVID-19, they have to triage. And like you said, priority one needs to be your own people, your own clinicians, physicians, staff. And then you've got to focus on the patients with existing behavioral health conditions. 
if I'm using prioritization as a goal, who else should leaders put to the top of their triage list? It should be those other populations who we have been talking about in recent weeks on the podcast. It is Black people who are experiencing higher rates of illness and higher death rates from COVID-19. And we also need to be thinking about essential workers and people without regular access to healthcare, other minority groups who are the most vulnerable during a public health emergency. Exactly right. And like you said, that's an important conversation to be having right now. But you've also outlined for me that behavioral health needs are practically universal. So beyond the first three populations in your triage list, what can leaders do to support the rest of the population? Leaders need to get creative with their self-service resources so that they can market this to the masses. At the absolute baseline, organizations need to be creating uh, more accessible ways to get to those resources, whether that's as simple as a helpline or resource pages on their website that are highly publicized. Claire, I'm seeing a lot just even targeted to me about some apps that are out there. I think Talkspace is probably a pretty popular one. Are these kind of the self-service tools that you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great example. Talkspace, which is, for those who don't know, a text and video chat therapy service. They've seen a 65% increase in customers since mid-February. Doctor on Demand has seen a 130% increase over this time last year. And it's not just coming from the direct-to-consumer market. We know that payers are partnering up with a lot of these vendors to add them to their network for patients to access, as well as they're covering these telebehavioral health services at a higher rate than before. Even if you yourself don't have the self-service modalities to offer to the rest of the population, somebody does. And it's a matter of finding those partnerships and directing those to the rest of your community and your patients. Exactly. Claire, I want to give you a moment to maybe speak directly to providers, maybe particularly those who aren't used to seeing an increase in behavioral health needs like we're seeing right now. What's your message to help support them as they navigate what this means for their own patient care? You don't have to be a behavioral health specialist to help here. Virtually every patient who walks into your door, henceforth, is going to have some kind of behavioral health need. So even if you don't have that expertise, you can at least acknowledge it, normalize patients' distress reactions, conduct psychosocial assessments. And then in the moment, you can empathize. You can help patients recognize their own stress reactions, help them identify how they should be responding, as simple as practicing calming breathing techniques. And then most importantly, you have to connect them to other resources. As you mentioned before, they don't even have to be in your own health system. And I'll just admit that that's hard to do, especially as providers are struggling with interacting telephonically or or just a very rapidly changing pace to the industry. Do we have anything to help those frontline providers as they're thinking about navigating behavioral health conversations? Yes, we just published a blog post the other week on how to talk about behavioral health and some terms that you can avoid and some options for how you can replace those words. Well, let's make sure to add that one to to the show notes. All of this is kind of leaving me with a a major question, and that's will COVID-19 actually be a moment to transform the way we see behavioral health in this country? Is there enough urgency, enough need 
and enough awareness to spark long-term change in the way that we provide behavioral health services. I want to get your take. What do you think? It's a great question. And me personally, I hope so. I hope that's the case. We have been hearing from a range of different folks across the healthcare system, predominantly the chief strategy officer and people reporting up to that. I think that they are still at the very beginning of this and are pretty skeptical as to whether this is the watershed moment for behavioral health. The directors of behavioral health who I speak to seem to be a bit more encouraging that this could be it, that others are finally recognizing the need that they've been seeing firsthand. Yeah. I mean, the fact that CSOs at all are coming to the table and saying, I need behavioral health to be part of my strategic plan. I mean, that seems like a change. That's because we're suddenly in a situation where a large proportion of Americans are now experiencing symptoms that in the past have been felt by a far smaller group. There's still a chance that this national or even international trauma that we're all collectively going through could help normalize the discussion around mental health and create an incentive for lawmakers and employers to push for improved access to behavioral health services. Well, Claire, I know we've covered a ton today, but I want to ask you one final question. When it comes to behavioral health, what should executives be really thinking about and spending their time on right now? Short-term, one of the most important things that healthcare leaders can be doing amid this COVID-19 crisis is to take every opportunity they can to encourage mental health well-being. Promote behavioral health resources at every staff meeting you have for the next three to six months. And that means affirming that taking care of your mental health is not selfish. It's like you're on a plane. You need to put on your own oxygen mask before taking care of others. In the long-term scheme, we have to be thinking if this is finally the time to transform the mental health care system. Historically, it has been funded, structured, researched, all separately from other clinical conditions. And while we've seen some alignment in recent years of behavioral health and other health services, to do this in a substantial way, this requires true cross-industry collaboration. Payers, health systems, independent and community behavioral health providers, and legislators, just to name a few. I really appreciate that you use the phrase, put on your own oxygen mask before helping others particularly as somebody who took a couple of days off last week in an effort to do just that. (laughs) Yeah, I have the same thought on my mind. A couple of weeks I'm heading to the beach and I have never been more ready. Well, Claire, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Stay safe and we will make sure to have you back on Radio Advisory. Thank you. The psychological toll of COVID-19 is significant. And just like the pandemic itself, it's something that most hospitals and health systems aren't actually prepared for. Behavioral health needs must be a part of your post-COVID strategic plan. So take a look at the resources that you have to offer. Find the gaps in your existing strategy. And triage the needs of your staff, your patients, and your community. And as always, we're here to help. Oh, I was so unprepared for that question. Uh, 